0: Like I had said, this morning we are going to be discussing uh, the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. So if you would please turn with me to Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Forgive me, I forgot my copy of the scriptures at home, unfortunately. I didn't realize that until I just got here, and so I'm going to be reading from my laptop. <clears throat> so within the context of this passage, uh, I'm sure everybody in here is well familiar with the story of Job, with uh, Satan you know, walking to and fro about the earth, and then going and entering into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord actually giving him authorization to plague Job, right? Removing... Uh, his children, his health, his wealth, uh, his whole estate, essentially, and even to the point where his wife even cries out, curse God and die, right? And then we have it later on, you know, when, when after he's already responded to his wife and basically says, you know, shall we not receive both the evil and the good from the Lord, right? So when the Lord basically plagues these things, uh, allows these things to happen to him, he is saying, I should be willing to accept it because blessed be the name of the Lord, right? he is worthy of my worship nonetheless, right? And then eventually we see his friends, a couple of his friends come, and uh, they ultimately, they, they sit there for a week, and they don't even talk to him at all, but then they start offering counsel to him. Obviously, this counsel is not, is not very good, although the, the problem with their counsel is not so much the fact that it is doctrinally imperfect. The things that they're saying are good, However, they are being applied in an improper manner. So a lot of the things that they're saying are actually very doctrinally precise and very good here. And so his friend Zoar, in verses uh, 7 through 10 here, actually um, there's a lot of doctrinal truth and weight to the statement that he's making here, even though he's, again, applying it in an improper manner. Right. So that's the context of what I'm about to read here. So he says, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? And this is the reading of God's word. So essentially what is being said is uh, in a rhetorical fashion, can you actually know the full extent of who God is? And the answer, obviously, that we all should be able to answer is no, right? Because he says there, they are higher than heaven and deeper than Sheol. Who can actually get to the ends, to the actual outer limits of who God is, right? Who can actually get to know where God ends, right? So uh, basically, it's kind of like a, a fathom. Right, you guys know what a fathom is? So it's, you know, basically they would have these lead lines out at sea, right? Where they would actually take a rope and they would apply, attach a weight to it and then they would mark, you know, every six feet or so, a fathom is about six feet long, generally, and then they would drop it into the ocean to see how, and wait for it to hit the ground, hit the bottom of, bottom of the ocean floor to see how deep the ocean was where they were at. And basically what, what that would, uh, that's called is you're measuring the fathoms. God is fathomless; He has no bottom, right? So we also see in First Timothy six sixteen that it tells us that He dwells in light which no man can approach it. no, uh, whom no man can hath seen nor can see. So in this passage, it's not who has not yet approached, right? It is who has, uh, who is not approached already. It is who cannot be approached, right? So this. On This light that we cannot attain to. We cannot actually go and approach and see. It's, he is, again, beyond the bounds of our ability to approach. And our confession, uh, chapter 2, verse one, uh, section 1, actually even lists the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility as one of the attributes of who God is, one of those core attributes. And I will even say that the London Baptist Confession Uh, As much as I like to actually dog on it, and uh, I like to dog on Baptists, I will give them their their due here. The London Baptist Confession, uh, section 2, section 1, is actually even more precise, more filled out, and better than the Westminster's here. So, um, it actually refers to God's incomprehensibility three times. It actually talk, uh, says that he is incomprehensible twice, but then it also re- references that unapproachable light within that same section. And so, uh, St. Augustine goes so far as to say this in one of his sermons. For if thou comprehend, he is not God. Right? So God is not—if if you can fully encapsulate who God is, if you can find, get to that end and you can measure his fathoms, then he is not God. Right? So, what is the difference here between what we're saying, right? So, you can apprehend God. Comprehend is what we're saying you cannot do, right? So, you can apprehend. You can get a glimpse. You can kind of grab onto Him, you can get an understanding of who He is. But comprehend is kind of like wrapping your arms all the way around and linking your hands on the other side. You can't fully wrap your arms around who he is, right? So that is the distinction of what we're making here. You can, in some way, understand who he is. But generally, when we talk about who God is and the things that we can understand about him, generally it's done through what's called, uh, historically, via negativa in the Latin, which is through negation, right? Right? So via negativa, which is through negation. So take, for instance, um, the idea of uh, infinite. A lot of these attributes that we prescribe to God, that we understand about who God is, they are oftentimes through negation. Infinite, infinite, not finite, right? So what we mean when we say God is infinite, it's not to say something positive about who He is. It's saying something negative, in a way, but it's revealing something about him, right? So it's, I don't quite understand what it means for God to be infinite, but I do know that it is the exact opposite of him, for him to be finite, right? So I cannot fully wrap my mind around what it means for something to be infinite. It's, it's not possible, because I myself am a finite creature, right? And I have a, I have a finite comprehension. Even, uh, so Stephen Charnock actually says... Uh, even though we uh, cannot comprehend him as he is, we must not fancy him to be something that he is not one of the seventeenth uh, century puritans um, so even taking the idea of the some of the attributes that uh, we kind of state about God that seem to be positive right so like say the doctrine of divine simplicity for for instance that's that doesn 't have any un or in at the or a at the front of it It kind of negates what 's- uh, what comes following right. So we kind of take this idea of God being simple, but when we go to define it,
1: the definition itself
0: is is negation. When we talk about who God is as simple, it is he is not composite. He is not composed of parts. Even the definition itself has to be in some way negative. So these via negativas are essentially like when you're going bowling, right? And you, you know, like when you're a kid or you you just suck at bowling in general, right? Uh, like the, the bumpers on the lanes that you can put up, right? I remember as a young kid, even throwing the ball and it getting stuck in the gutters when those things were put up. That was pretty embarrassing, obviously. I was like six years old, but still like went crying. But, <laughs> but basically those bumpers, the via negativas are basically the bumpers for us to understand Orthodoxy. Because when we start moving outside of the bounds of that via negativa, and we start describing things that are positive, that are creaturely to God, that ultimately starts veering away and starting. we're bringing God down to our level. Does that make sense? So, uh, another thing that we need to get at here is uh, what we, like, uh, the idea of mystery, right? So, when you read passages like, um, you know, Romans 16, or, um, you know, all throughout Hebrews, where it talks about the mysteries of God, right? We're not talking about mystery in some sense that is calculable, right? We're not talking When we talk about mysteries of God, we're not talking about a puzzle to be solved, right? It's not something that we can solve. Mystery, in a historical sense, has actually been something hidden within a, something else. That's what it's meant. So this is actually the same, like when, when you read the Greek, it's actually the, the word mysterion is also the same term that... The Latin then translated into sacramentum. Which obviously, I'm sure all of you guys can see that root word, sacrament. Right? So the sacraments, there is a mystery that is going on there. When we come, say, to baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is something mysterious that is happening in it. There is uh, The Lord is actually giving us grace that, like, that is hidden to us in it. We, have, we are receiving a, a visible representation of something that it represents, right? Something that it extends beyond our sense perception. Make sense? It signifies something greater. Mystery is not just something that we haven't figured out yet. Obviously, um, you know, every single Christian would understand the fact that, we, there, that there is always something else to learn about God. It's not just, oh, that's a mystery. And it's not, it's, but ultimately, that's something that can be solved in some way. Right. Um, What we talk about when we say mystery is something that is hidden from us. It is something that the Lord has not revealed and or something that we cannot actually understand because we are finite. It's not something that we will one day figure out. It is even in reference to the things that we do know. Right. So when we talk about, um, say, uh, again, that infinite. Right. When we say that God is infinite, it's. Yes, I can in some way get a glimpse and a, some some small understanding of what it means for God to be infinite. But even the things that we do know about God, there is a great wealth of things that extend beyond it that we don't know. Does that make sense? Um, Sam. Yes, sir. Is, isn't
1: even the Scriptures God? Well, it's certainly Scripture is sufficient. Yes, sir. But it's. Um, it's sufficient for us to apprehend God gave us the uh, scriptures to know Him, to pr- appar- essentially apprehend Him, because we, we really, we really, as it says in Hebrew, we only see Him partially. The only, uh, yeah. you know, He condescended. Yes, sir. Through the through the in a way, He condescended to us through the scripture, because there's no way. I mean. I guess we close the gap, though, right, with the, with, with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's no because closing the, the gap. The Holy Spirit makes us, gives us the ability to, to, to know what He wants us
0: to know. Absolutely. So, but, but,
1: yeah. but we still, we're still, you know, not fully, not, not really completely comprehending. It's still difficult to comprehend.
0: Absolutely. So this actually kind of gets into what I was going to get into next. Right, so we we never fully close the gap, even with the with the Holy Ghost, because again, you cannot bridge the gap between the finite and the infinite. That's that's not possible. Um, however, uh, because you know God is Creator and we are creature, right? So, but how, you know there is um, a lot that is done where the Lord does further reveal like mysteries that were once hidden to us, right? That would be hidden to us apart from the Scriptures, right? Um, that is really the whole point of special revelation is the lord giving us that extra piece that we need in order to know more about him and to know enough about him for salvation right um but um even the scriptures we have to understand um are creature are finite right so there's um you know this this Aspect that I also want to get at here. Um, sorry. Um, where we talk about, say, our like our knowledge of God and our language, and even the language of Scripture itself. So um, we have to understand the distinction between what is univocal, what is equivocal. And what is analogical? All right, so uh, univocal is basically the things that we uh, can say and the things that we can know are one-to-one with the things that are. Right? Does that make sense? Am I losing you guys? Before we go here, I think we need to back up
2: a step and define, define the word comprehension versus apprehension. Because the way that we use the word comprehension today, that's like what, if we so ask somebody, "Do you comprehend what I'm saying?" we'll say,
0: "Yes," but that's not a proper way of understanding the word comprehension theologically. Yeah. So that, I actually tried to get at that earlier. Yeah. Whenever I wrote these words up here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, comprehension is more of containing in yes. a theological sense. When so yes. we say
2: we can't comprehend God, we're not saying we can't know God. What we're saying is you can't contain God. Yes, And when we apprehend God, those are the things that God has given us through revelation of the things that he would have us to know about him. So anything that we apprehend or we know about God as God ultimately comes from God and is given to us in a way that we can understand, which gets closer to the word the way we would use the word comprehend now. So sometimes when you hear somebody making a theological argument say, well, you can't comprehend God. You're going, hey, wait a minute. You're saying I can't know God? No, that's not the argument. The argument is you can't contain God. You can't gather all the parts of God up, put it somewhere, and say, This is my God. In that sense, God is uncontainable. Right. I just look at it. I I look at the the stars. Okay? You look up at the
1: stars, and you say, From what you see, you can appreciate. Because you say, wow, he made all those. Okay, you can appreciate But then you ask the question so, what's beyond, as far as you can see, what's beyond that? Yeah. Which actually. And, 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 and your mind starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the container goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the simplest <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, yeah. 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 It, Which. It uh. comprehend. Right, right. Yeah, yes. The same Gregory you that, that
3: analogy, yeah. you have, I mean, of course, all analogies break down But even when you say that related to something, Star. The star has a beginning and an end. It is made up of.
0: Even then, St. Right, Gregory of Nyssa, in his Letters Against the Arians, right, he actually has uh, a section in there where he talks about how we cannot comprehend even creatures as humans. So we can go to the star, we can learn a lot about it, we can learn many things about it, but we can't comprehend every single facet and aspect of even a limited, finite creature like a star, Right? So how can we expect, be expected to do the same for the infinite God, right?
1: I mean, I can't even uh, comprehend when you start getting into one aspect, let's say, of your eye. One aspect of your How does that happen? <clears throat> I mean, it, 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 you, can, you can study it on a certain level, but when you put it together, I mean, how do all those molecules and everything work together to actually do exactly
0: what it's there intended to do. It starts falling apart. It's, it's incomprehensible. Yeah, but to I mean the analogy that I had used to get at Andrew's point here, again, is, I mean, like, the way I like to describe it is like that, where apprehension is where it's kind of like where you can grab onto something, right? You can grab it, you can get a, a glimpse, you can get a certain aspect of it, but you when you comprehend something, you have your arms fully wrapped around. Right? only imagine this with your mind with your soul again, even the human soul which is immaterial, which is spirit cannot, because it is finite it is creaturely, it has a beginning and it has, it doesn't have an end, it's immortal but it cannot because of, by virtue of it having a beginning, cannot comprehend that which does not have a beginning the uncreated creator yes, and again, not get us off
4: track but there, uh, I do podcast on the ministries and I listen to that and one of the things they had been doing was on the simple praise of, of the Lord and mm-hmm. I'm still trying to apprehend that portion of what that fear and a lot of that has been given on the via negative it's you know, what it doesn't mean in the process but trying to apprehend when the Lord says that he is to be feared exactly the joy that can come out of that fear the other side of what he reveals to us and so I'm still trying to get my head around that process. So that's part of that apprehension. Not, you know, the negative is, you know, there's times to bow down before him if you're in that, but, but it's not the scary run away from, hide, I don't want it. it's not, you know, so anyway, I'm just using that as an example. So that's part of that, you're right, that's part of that apprehension that he reveals through his word, but then in, but then through the Holy Spirit, each of us has to work out certain things of our understanding and, and what that means. I thought yeah. that was a good example that you gave. If I'm struggling with that when I look at some portions that I'm even mm-hmm. right now trying to understand what are you he telling me Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. So to get these points right, what I was talking about. So this so, is the transition of what we're making right
2: now. But just so we're all because I feel like we're all on the same page. Let's stay on that. We're transitioning now into the nature of our knowing, of our knowing of okay. our knowing. Yeah. yeah. And we this can't is... communicate the thing that's in our mind we're not able always
0: to communicate to the thing that that's in reality. Absolutely, right? so yeah. yeah. 100%. So this is the realm of epistemology of how we know things, right? So we as creatures, <clears throat> so we have different ways of knowing things, right? So univocal, this is basically that one-to-one, right? There is a one-to-one ratio like we know the thing as it is in itself. That's so, well, the language that we use, I can say that is a cup, and my word cup actually is one-to-one with the object that is in Andrew's hand. Make sense? So that is exactly, that's a good analogy. So then we have equivocal, which is essentially where our language has nothing to do with the reality. Like so you take the example of a bat, right? So. A bat, I can say that's a bat over there, but it's actually, I'm talking about the animal, not the thing that, that Trent used to swing when he was playing baseball, right? So like the, like the language, the word that I'm using has nothing to do with the reality. Like colors, that's a, colors are a good example. We call something red.
2: Yeah. Does the word red have anything to do with the nature of the color red? No, it's a name we've assigned to the color red. Other languages have other color names for that color. We're talking about the same phenomenon, mm-hmm. but the word associated with it, it right, is yeah. just a word. It's yeah. a sound, a mouth sound that we <laughs> make it so that we know that we're talking about a certain <coughs> thing, but we're not going Right. right but, then, yeah. but then we
0: have analogy, the analogical form, right? So, mm-hmm. which an- analogy, there is some overlap. There is some way in which there is uh, a crossover between our words and our knowing with the object itself. However, like Trent said, at some point, there is a breakdown, right? So there is, it's kind of like a a Venn diagram here, right? Where I have a small circle, which is the word I use, say, infinite. But then, over here... (laughs) I don't know if everybody can see that, but there's like a small little overlap here, and this goes all the way into infinity. There's a, like, it's, there's a very small overlap in our understanding of what it means for God to be infinite, and our word that we use for infinite, with the actual reality itself. But there is overlap, and so we can properly use that term, however, it is, in some sense, not one-to-one. Does that make sense? Am I anybody? And that's why in analogical language, we use
2: the via negativa. Yes. Because you by analogy can say what something is not, but you can never say what something is, because as soon as you say what it is, you are claiming comprehension of that thing. Absolutely, yeah. So you can say, there's no gold in my hand, but you can't say there's no gold in Aiken County. The only way to prove that there's no gold in Aiken County would be to dig up and sift every square inch of soil to prove that point right but you could say i don't see gold right so you, yeah there's a way of using analogy in the negative it's always safe In the
3: positive it breaks down immediately 100 and percent with the the roots um, unit would be one yes right and the vocal would be voice or one one word right or, or or one-to-one, as you say. yeah. And then equivocal is like equivocate. If you're in a conversation with somebody and they start equivocating, you know, they're contradicting themselves. They're using
0: a term in a way that it's not actually supposed to be used. Right. And then analog Or or using it, like, in two different meanings in the same conversation potentially. Yeah,
3: and one of the easiest attributes to kind of think about as far as analogical language goes is saying God is Love to us, we learn what love is from God, from the Word, through our experience, and all those things. But to say that God loves in the way that we love, love is to, to totally missing.
0: Yeah. It, it, because, again, there's small overlap. We do have some glimpse, but it, mm-hmm. what it means for God to be love is infinitely greater, infinitely more, infinitely transcending that which we understand love to be. And this actually also gets at kind of the idea of, uh, say, in Second Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about, uh, you know, being ascended or being brought up into the third heaven. And he saw and heard things that, he can, that language cannot describe, right? He is ineffable. Everything about God in, in every way is ineffable. Um, our language, our words, as good and useful as they are, they cannot fully encompass what it means when we uh, simply state the word God. Even. So even the word God that we use in reference to him is in some way analogical. Our, because our understanding of who God is and what God is, we can't fully comprehend what that means. That's why God oftentimes reveals himself with Elohim of
2: yeah, Yahweh of because those names, those are actually proper names, right? Like El Shaddai, God of Peace, right? That's an actual name. That's not just a tagline, but it's a way of God naming Himself mm-hmm. and through analogy, right, giving us an understanding of His character and his, of who He is. Yeah. These yeah. names then start working analogically to teach us. Yeah, so we can apprehend who God is. He gives us these aspects. So you can kind of line up the names and even that would be a proper, you know, lining up the names is all, all of God's names in scriptures. where we say God, we are taking that whole bundle with us and saying it's all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And more. And more, right. Because the names that we even have of God are only revealing the way that he, excuse me, acts in creation. Right, his his act of uh, his acts as creator, but God even extends outside of creation itself. So his names reveal something about him within the context of creation, because that's all we can understand as creatures is creation itself. So even we have to understand again that creator creature relationship and the fact that he extends even beyond creation itself, time, matter. Uh, you know everything, in any way, in any way, he is boundless. So he extends beyond that, and that puts into perspective for us that even the things that we know about him through his names are also analogies. They are analogies for us to understand a glimpse. Right? I mean, we even t- see in uh, Judges thirteen where uh, the angel of the Lord comes and reveals uh, to Samson's parents um, the fact that uh, she is going to conceive a child. Right, and you know, gives these commands of, you know, the Nazarite vow and everything—the things that she is, like she's not to partake of the fruit of the vine, things like that—while she is, uh, you know, uh, while he's still in the womb, because he is not to partake of these things outside of the womb. So, <clears throat> um, you know, what we have is this angel comes, and then uh, Samson's father asks, "What is your name?" He realizes at some point you haven't even revealed your name to me, and he says, "What is your name?" And he says. Why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful for you, or it is a secret, depending on what translation you you read. And if you actually look at that, what he's meaning by it's too wonderful or it's a secret is not something that is just simply it's hidden from you. It's something that you cannot fully understand. Even the very name of God itself is something that is hidden from us in some way. Makes sense? Yeah, I mean the name, the most proper
2: name for God that we have in the Bible given to most of the burning bush and it's
0: simply I am what I am or I am that I am. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the way we would translate it. I am. Yep. Yep, that tetragrammaton and it's even all of I mean
2: that's just that's the big that's the most proper name you can give God. Yep. He is. What, what's God saying? He is. <laughs> he 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 am. Like <laughs> that's as much as I can comprehend or we can comprehend. That's the big proper name. Which,
0: you know, even though we can't fully understand even what that means, for God to sit for God when he says, I am that I am, that is illogical to us in some way. Or not illogical, but it, we can't compute it, right? God is not illogical. Take back what I just said. So if we can't compute what it means, right? It, it's not something that we as finite creatures can process. But even that, again, is analogy. To simply say God is, any predication, any, so you guys know the breakdown of a sentence, right? Like the subject and predicate. So when we say God is, God (laughs) Uh, God is, so we have our subject here and our predicate, right? So like the noun and the verb, right? This is subject, God. Any predication we offer to God or we attach to God as the subject is, again, analogy. But he has revealed himself in that way. He has revealed himself as the God who is the great I am. So that is like what Mr. Uh, Steve, uh, sorry, Mr. Tom, pretty, I apologize. Uh, Mr. Tom um, had, was talking about earlier where there's a sense in which he, the spirit does come down and he does, in a way, reveal more to us. Right, Christ has done the same uh, in His incarnation. He is the greatest expression of that revelation. Right, so we have where this revelation is occurring. Um, the Lord is accommodating for us. Right, this is what some theologians throughout history have referred to as the doctrine of divine accommodation. So Aquinas talks about. Uh, he says that the Lord reveals Himself in the mode of the knower. So we, as finite creatures, again. We can only know God in a limited capacity. So he has to reveal himself in a limited capacity for us to understand. Right? So um, this is, uh, again, doctrine of divine accommodation, um, where we also see um, Christ has come down, right? The name Emmanuel, right? That Again, getting back to the names themselves, God with us. Right. We have to understand that, again, even this, where God with us, God, subject, with us, predicate, that's still analogous. Um, so, uh, yeah, now I'm trying to find out where I am in my nose because I've completely gone off Scripture. Um, Sam, would uh, you mind uh, taking a
3: stab at explaining how divine accommodation works when you scriptures
0: say something like God repents. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, again, what uh, this is, again, an analogy, right, a form of analogy. Um, it's, we, we also see in the scriptures instances where it says that God has nostrils that he breathes out of, or the Lord extends forth his right hand, right? We understand that God is without body, but then also, our confession even states this, that he is without parts and passions, right? So, Simplicity with, without parts, but then we also without passions, where the Lord does not have something that he can repent of, where he actually undergoes operation from something outside of himself. So what these terms have historically been referred to, and these are very big words, forgive me, right? But, bear with me, it's anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. I'll get, I'll break it down just a second. Path, pathos, meaning passions in the Greek, right? Um, So, um, basically, anthropomorphisms, these are basically when we prescribe to God the languages of what it, like characteristics of a human body, like nostrils, arms, legs, things like that, right? And then anthropopathisms is when we prescribe human emotions or passions, to God. So these are analogies, they are not to, pers- to actually describe that God actually is in some sense repenting because God is not a man that he should repent, as the scriptures say, right? But it does say these things like when Jonah, um, you know, uh, when he had went to Nineveh, right, and he, uh, was pers- he was preaching to the people of Nineveh that he was going, uh, that the Lord was going to condemn them, that he was going to bring destruction upon them, if they did not repent. And then it says in chapter 4 that the Lord repented of his wrath. Or in Genesis 6, right, that the Lord had repented that he created man. Verse fifteen, is 15. Okay, yeah. So, so, yeah, so I didn't think of that one off the top of my head, but yeah, that's a, another good example. So when we see passages like that, it's not stating something about God. It's stating something about the, na- the, the nature of creation in relation to God and his immutability. And his, uh, his impassableness. So. so,
2: those words, anthropomorphism, anthropopathism, um, just to break down those words a little bit more, anthro means man. Words, anthro means man. Yeah. You can have We are anthropomorphic towards animals, right? So, if anyone never says, Oh, my dog is happy, okay? your dog isn't happy in the sense of human happiness or sadness or whatever, that's an anthropomorphism, you're putting, or a you're putting an emotion onto an animal that doesn't share that emo- emotion, or my dog has, you know, feet or whatever, that's a promorphism, right? But those terms always mean man, from man's perspective, anthro perspective, so when we say God repented, that's our perspective of God's activity, that's not God's actual activity, so when Jonah says, "Repent, and God will turn from you," there's a we can say in reality, in a real way, God did turn from his his turn turned his wrath from them. He but it's turned from the perspective from of man, from their perspective, right? So you see the storm coming, and then the storm turns, right? It did repent from our perspective, right? So there is a sense, though. This is where we're in analogy; those things aren't real. So, to say, well, God doesn't have passions means God doesn't repent. Well, yes, from from his side of the, the equation, yes. But there is a real sense, though, where we have to maintain that God really, truly turned away wrath, right? So, it makes repentance, it makes confession, it makes all of these things that we do, or are called to do, commanded to do,
1: real. It makes the threats of God real, But if we just, if we were to
2: say, well, God, you know, God doesn't actually repent. I'm not saying you're saying this, but some will take this and hear that and go, oh, God doesn't actually repent. So that threat that he gave to Nineveh, just as an example, was not a real threat. It wasn't a viable threat.
0: He wasn't actually ever going to do that. So it was, you know, a figment of their imagination or story or whatever you want to say. Yeah, this is what I was getting at when I was saying that it is from, it is speaking to the nature of creation itself in relation to God right so man was sinful and was deserving of that wrath in that moment and the lord pours out his wrath on sin right so if in the, if they remain in that state of sin they will receive wrath but in their repentance and turning away from their sin they no longer are deserving of that wrath does that make sense so again it's from the perspective of man like Andrew's saying and it's from the perspective of man. The nature of creation in relation to God in that Where it says... Like, our disposition. I'm sorry, where it says, like,
1: repent, uh, in a Greek or Hebrew languages, uh, would, the, would those would that word repent actually have been a better, a different, uh, would it have been more apparent in a Greek or Hebrew, if you knew Greek or Hebrew, on yeah. um, well, um, that word? In Hebrew,
2: the word repentance is simply turning. About oh, and, that makes sense. And it's the same in, You know, the idea that we turn from something, so it's a 180 kind of you turn away from it, yeah. And when it says God repents, you know, it's saying God turned from that. Mm -hmm. So, again,
3: that's from our perspective. The change in God is from our perspective that God turns away, yeah. In first, Samuel 15, I'm actually not going to emphasize it in my sermon, uh, but it's the text we're reading this morning, and it literally says within the same chapter repented, the King James says repented, the New King James says regretted, repented of making Saul king. And then later on, when it says that, you know, emphasizing the fact that Saul is losing his kingdom, it says, for the Lord does not repent. Right? So you know, when you see that, that it's not going to be a simple explanation and it's not a
1: not like, and it's not another other thing that comes in. It, it 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 would appear, but it's not. I know that God knew this is nothing. It was nothing new to God when He says He repented or changed. In reality, He knew exactly what was going to happen or how He was going to play this thing out, right? Yeah. And and. It's not to say that, oh, I made a, God, God made a mistake and therefore he went back on it. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. right, because that's the, the uh,
3: human, human understanding yeah. of yes. repent. And it's just the word that we've assigned to that
0: Hebrew word. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, we have about five minutes left, so just for some closing uh, applications here. Um, really, this is actually a very important doctrine for us to maintain. Um, Incomprehensibility helps us keep a proper perspective of who God is and who we are in relation to him, right? And we often assume that God is on the equal playing field as his creatures, though our univocal language, uh, through our univocal language, or when we read statements within the scriptures about him to be univocal, right? So you oftentimes will run into... People, like people who apostatize from the church, for instance. And they'll say things like, well, uh, why did God do this? Why does God do that? Right? Well, they're looking at God from their creaturely perspective. They're shaking their fist at him, raising it up to the heavens, shaking their fist at him, and saying, God, I demand this from God, as if he is another creature, as if he is something that they have the right to demand something from. But his knowledge of bringing about his perfect ends, even though we are living currently in these sinful means, is infinitely greater than our knowledge of our finite view of our sinful means. Right? Um, So this is a very, very important doctrine for us to maintain. This univocal thinking often leads to various heresies as well. Um, Like, uh, this is again, I'm going to real quick introduce a couple more terms. So, uh, basically we have to understand God as he is in himself and as he relates to creation. So, this is the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. Not to be confused with correct (laughs) no, not at all. So, the ontological trinity is who God is in himself. So, ontological means being, right, or essence. And so, basically, who God is in himself, in his being, as triune God, right? Economic is his outworkings, his actions in creation. So, God's, uh, and they do reflect one another in an analogical way, once again, right? So, we understand the ontological trinity where God, where God the Father is unbegotten. We profess that in the creeds where the Son is begotten. And then the son, uh, Spirit is, proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. We see this in the creeds, right? In the Nicene Creed, especially in the Athanasian Creed. But the economic trinity, there is a reflection of that in the outworkings of how God relates to his creation. So we have the, uh, where the Son is begotten, Right? We, he is eternally begotten. We understand that he is from eternity. He does not have a beginning, but he is begotten from the Father, from all before all worlds, as the creation, uh, Creed says. One second. But then, he, in some way, it reflects his who he is as Son eternally in his incarnation. He is sent forth from the Father and born of a woman. He is begotten even in creation. But then we also see the outworking of that also, a reflection and analogy of his work, outworking in creation with the Spirit proceeding forth in the Father and the Son, as well with that Pentecost, and now proceeding into the New Testament church, where he is sent forth from the Father and the Son to now be with us to reveal Christ, to, to, to inaugurate and bring forth this kingdom. What's Yes, yeah, so it's a very simple uh, contemporary economical
2: Probably been heard. Uh, the, the Father decrees, the Son acts or performs, the Spirit applies. That's what Sam was just talking about. That's that economic creed of Reformed theology that we've all settled at this point. So that is a reflection of the ontological relationship, the begottenness, the unbegottenness, the proceeding.
0: Yeah, we can't understand what it means for the Son to be begotten from eternity. Again, but this is what he's revealed in Scripture to us. And close up, going out beyond that,
4: the disciples and the apostles struggled because in the last part, you remember, they, they were asking questions about God. Mm-hmm. And Christ's answer to them was, If you know me, you know the Father. Absolutely. So, from creation, I guess that's that apprehension element mm-hmm. of it. Christ's answer to that, what Old Testament to, to Moses, God says, "I am." But yet, in the, to the disciples, Christ says, "Well, if you know me, you know the Father." Mm-hmm. So, how, so where does that fall within the
0: within the explanations that are, are within that within the topic? That you're so, this is actually something I'm going to be getting at as well, and like at the very end here, which. I guess I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's, yes, if we see the Son, we see the Father. Again, He is God with us. He is Emmanuel, right? Christ is uh, the, the sacrament par excellence, right? Where He is the fullest expression of the revelation of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, right? So when we see the Son in glory in the beatific vision. We will receive the sun here. We will see Him as He is. Uh, you know, even though now we see Him as through a glass, darkly, right? Um, we will see Him as He is, where ultimately the the emanate, the emanation, the the illumination that extends forth from His face outshines the sun, the stars, all the heavenly bodies. Where we will receive the fullness of the Godhead through Him, but. All eternity, so we will be extending forth into the Godhead through Christ for all of eternity, growing in our knowledge of who He is. This is what I talked about in my lesson on the doctrine of the beatific vision, where uh, this lesson where great Saint Gregory of Nyssa has this idea of epictasis in his uh, writing, The the Life of Moses, where um, he talks about how it's kind of like imagine uh, a bucket, right where it's filled to the brim but this bucket is ever growing and it's every as it's always growing it's always filled to the brim so we're always growing in our desire for God and always growing in our desire to to know him more and more and more and more but we're never not filled at the same time does that make sense so it's this idea of a, it's it's like a journey into God for all of eternity because he is incomprehensible, so therefore, we will for all of eternity learn more about him through the full revelation of Christ. And the Incarnation is the ultimate condescension of God to man. Mm-hmm. The ultimate accommodation
1: of God in God to man. Because Christ, Jesus Christ, is always ever God and man. Mm-hmm. After the Incarnation, he's eternally
2: God and man. He is both, both sign and, sign. and signified. Two distinct natures in one person for all eternity. That's our shorter catechism, 281, 20, Okay. Those that reality always remains. We will always ever know God through the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. And we will be made like he is. So
0: we won't see the Father in that sense, but we will see the Father because we see the Son. Right? So there's it's some, not as if there is another person sitting beside behind the person of Christ. Yeah. When we see Christ, we see the fullness of the Godhead in His person.
2: It's, so to bring that even down to a, a to tie in that idea of mystery and sacrament, when we see the Lord's table, that is our accommodation, the reason why we have the body and the blood. That is for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we behold the Lord Jesus Christ now. Looking forward to when we will behold face to face, but we, just as we have the Lord Jesus Christ in the supper. Now we're not Roman Catholics; so we don't believe that the priest changes it to real body, real blood. We're not Lutherans, where we believe Jesus is, you know, present, really there, consubstantiation, which that's argument Lutherans don't really believe that. But anyway,
0: that's another. <laughs> but, they believe that his body was received the or was communicated the divine attribute of. Uh, of omnipresence, essentially, yeah, yeah. And this is what they call ubiquity, and so the body right, is right. all over there. But But oh. you use consubstantiation with the Lutheran, they're going to say, hey, but
2: we believe in the real spiritual presence as Reformed Christians, as the Reformed view is that yes, Jesus is just as really present in sacrament and mystery as He is in glory. But those two, that thing, we're participating in. Now in mystery and sacrament is going to be the same thing that we're going to participate in in reality with our senses when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah, uh, is it a con- contradiction that Jesus that God revealed to Moses that the to Bush I am is incomprehensible? And then Jesus telling the disciples that, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the disciples going, Well, we see you and we we can put our arms around you, right?
0: But both of those things through mystery right? Same, same way in which we can wrap our mouth around the bread, yeah. right? So we can comprehend in some way the finite aspect, the sign itself. But the thing that it signifies is utterly transcendent. It is utterly incomprehensible. So this is what I was about to get at as well with my last application here. With uh, It aids us in our worship. Right? Because it helps us to put into perspective the utterly transcendent and other-than nature of the God that we worship. Right? The 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession, uh, states, learn to am- admire where you cannot fathom. And uh, John Owen also has a you know, similar quote, where he says something to the effect of Now I cannot uh, explain to you what I have just said, but I can adore. Right? So it's the, other, the, entire other, the, the utter otherness of God produces a sense of wonder in us. It produces a sense of awe in which we enter in and we worship him. Contrary to modern sensibilities and reflexes, this puts into perspective that we need to learn to adore that which we cannot comprehend rather than trying to simply treat him as if He's a riddle to be solved. I actually heard John Piper kind of use the analogy here in just the last second before we pray. Um, You know, the analogy of uh, the microscope and the telescope Once, kind of referring to this, right, where we can look up at the stars that are much greater than us and we can wonder at them by looking at them through the telescope, right? They are much bigger than us. They are much more, uh, they are much more, uh, you know, huge than us, I should say, right? But we can look at them and we can be in awe when we look at them. But if we look at, you know, a microscope, we're looking at something that's tinier than us. We're looking at it, and we're trying to, like, study its most minute details, right, yeah, on a microscopic level. But we oftentimes, when we, when we hash out these doctrinal things, when we uh, start talking about theology, it can become us looking at God through a microscope, or we're treating him as if he is something smaller than us to be studied, rather than something to look up to and adore So when we enter into worship this morning, that is something to keep in mind is the fact that we are worshiping this utterly transcendent and powerful God. So I know I said that was my final point, but I actually had something here um, that I wanted to say at the very end. In a final point, know that God is all powerful and even beyond our most exhaustive imaginings. Though we will spend an eternity journeying further and further into knowing him more and more in glory, just know that we will forever only touch the hem of his garment. And that touching the hem of his garment is more than enough, just like the woman in Matthew 9, that hem has saved you. It has made you clean. And it you clean you. All right, let's pray. Almighty Lord, you are our utterly transcendent creator. and We come before you in awe now as we enter into worship this morning. We thank you for bringing us to another Lord's Day even though we are not deserving of it. We pray now that you would accept our worship and that it would be acceptable to you, that it would be glorifying to you, and that it would be renewing to us. And Lord, we pray that our finite glimpses, our finite expressions of worship are even able to touch your ears, and that you would look upon us with favor. We pray these things in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Ghost. Amen.